0: Today, I'm continuing my series talking about lessons from Elijah. And if you've missed any of this, I encourage you to please get in. I think that this is just a life-changing teaching. These are things that God has used in my life that have just literally turned my life around. We've covered some powerful truths, and and, uh, I've said this before, but if you would learn these lessons at their expense, you don't have to make the same mistakes. I tell you, that is so critical. People today are just, it's like they don't have any history. They don't know how God has dealt with other people. They don't learn any lessons through them. And so they have to go out and learn everything through the school of hard knocks. And I tell you, that is not the best way. If you live through it, it may make a great testimony, but there is a better way. And that is to go to the Word of God and learn things at other people's expense. Now we come to 1 Kings chapter 18. And in 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of... uh, You know what? That's 2 Kings. Let me retool here. I was in the wrong book. No wonder it didn't sound right. 1 Kings chapter 18 says, And it came to pass after many days, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now let me point out, we're learning lessons from Elijah, and this is one of the things that God has really spoken to me. And God gave Elijah a word about going to King Ahab and pronouncing this drought. Then he gave him his second word about provision at the brook Cherith. He gave him a third word about going to Zarephath but over three and a half years period of time. You learn that this was three and a half years from Luke chapter 4. I believe it's around verse 25 where Jesus spoke of this and he said that there was a drought for three and a half years. So Jesus dated how long this was. And over three and a half year period of time, there are three times recorded that God spoke a specific word to Elijah. Now that's significant. Because, you know, sometimes people think that just every single day that they are going to wake up and God is going to be giving them supernatural direction. And yet, if you look at the life of Elijah, you could say the same thing about David, about Moses, and on and on and on it goes. These people were in a daily relationship with the Lord, and certainly not everything that God revealed to them was spoken or or recorded for us. But nonetheless, there were three major occurrences over three and a half years. And this idea that every day it's going to be just God speaking to you, if that's where you set your hope, and if you are expecting to receive some brand new revelation, some major input from God every single day, then you're going to be disappointed. I think it's Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And you have to have realistic goals. Did you know God wants us just to relate to Him by faith, to walk with Him by faith? And every day is not going to be one of these spectacular moments. And I think that there's people that that they struggle in their relationship with the Lord because they're always looking for the spectacular. They're always looking for something special. And a tremendous amount of our relationship with the Lord is just walking by faith and just every single day relating to Him. Elijah, over three and a half years, had some spectacular things happen. But I believe that the vast majority of it, over three and a half years, what would that be? 365 days a year times three is well over 1,100 days. He had three special days where God spoke something specific to him. Boy, that's significant to me. And this is one of the lessons that I learned from Elijah that you know what he was just patient and when he didn't hear from God when he didn't get a brand new revelation every day he just kept acting on the previous word that God had given him he just kept doing he was occupying until you know the Lord came and gave him a brand new word so this is one of the things I see here in 1st Kings chapter 18 after three and a half years the word of the Lord came unto him Elijah didn't move Until he got a word from God. Many of us get impatient and we think, well, God hadn't said anything specific and I feel like I'm pressured, I've got to see some changes, and so we just choose to go out and do things on our own. I'm telling you, one of the things, one of the positive lessons that you learn from Elijah is that he didn't move until he heard from God. Would to God that every one of us was like that. Boy, this is powerful. Again, you could meditate on that and apply that to your life and I believe get much more benefit out of it than what I've just said right here. But I wanted to point that out. So in verse 2 it says, And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. So again, he got a word from God, and it wouldn't have done him any good if he hadn't have obeyed it. I've already made this point in the 17th chapter, but it says... Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 5, So Elijah went and did. And then in verse 9, God spoke unto him, and he went and did. And then the widow at Zarephath, God spoke to her through Elijah, and she went and did. And you've got to obey what God is showing you. It wouldn't have done any good for Elijah to have stayed where he was and just prayed and somehow or another believed all of this. God uses people, and He flows through us, and we've got to obey What God tells us. Boy, this is so critical. And I know I'm speaking to people all around the world that God is speaking through me to you and you have more revelation from God than what you've acted on. That should never be. That should never be. If God has shown you something to do, you ought to be in the process of doing it. Now, it is true that many of the things God shows us, it takes multiple steps. It is a process to get it done. And so you can't necessarily just see the fulfillment of everything that God has told you all at one time. But you ought to be moving in that direction. Man, that is powerful. And anyway, it goes on to show that this famine was so severe. This drought had caused a famine and there was such a severe drought. That Ahab had taken his second in command, a man named Obadiah, who really loved God and was a true servant of God. Now this is interesting in itself. Uh, you know, this is something that you see consistent, is that even in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, God raised up Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Esther was in the reign of Ahasuerus, and on and on you could go. Nehemiah served Uh, Darius, and you find these ungodly kings, and yet God seemed to always raise up somebody that was there giving a Christian witness. I don't guess in the Old Testament you'd say it was a Christian witness, but a godly witness. God had his people there, and I believe that this is true, that there's always godly people that God is raising up and trying to get involved in these Governments, even ungodly governments, to turn them around. And one of the lessons that I learn is that I believe that just like in our day, I believe that there's people that God is raising up. And there's probably more godly people involved in government than what we realize. And people say, well, you can't see it by the way our nation is going. Well, we don't have the, the privilege or the opportunity to see how bad things would be if there weren't some godly people around. It could be much worse. I believe that God's always got people around that are impeding what Satan is trying to do. And this is one of the lessons that you see. Obadiah here was a godly man. Anyway, they were going throughout the land, searching and seeing if there was any grass left, if there was any fountains of water so that they wouldn't lose all of their animals. Now again, this shows you how severe this drought was. That I mean, they were close to losing all of the animals. It was a severe drought drought. God had brought this nation to its knees because of their rejection of God. And the Lord sent Elijah and he ran across the path of Obadiah, this godly servant to King Ahab. And Elijah when uh, Obadiah saw him, he says, Are, is this my Lord, Elijah? He was shocked to find him. And he said here that there was no nation in verse uh, this is in verse 10 As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whether my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said, He is not here, uh, there he took an oath of the kingdom and that nation that they found thee not. In other words, this shows you that Elijah, because of this drought and because he had spoken this word, Ahab knew exactly exactly why this was happening. He knew the person that God used to bring this drought, and Elijah had said over there in 1 Kings 17:1 that there won't be any rain or dew until I say so. In other words, he was a key figure in this whole thing. Therefore, Ahab had sought on every nation on the face of the earth looking for Elijah. Now, this is a key piece of information, and uh, it shows that God used this drought to just literally focus attention on God's man, the prophet Elijah, and Ahab had sought for him. And Obadiah, when Elijah said, go tell Ahab that I'm here, he says, what are you doing? He says, he's looked in all of these nations for you. And if I tell him that you are gonna see him, then the spirit of God's gonna pick you away, take you someplace. And then when my word doesn't come to pass, Ahab will kill me. You've put a sword in his hand. In other words, this shows that they actually thought that God supernaturally was just spiriting Elijah away because they had sought for him so much that they figured they would have found him if it hadn't been some supernatural intervention and hiding of Elijah. And so Elijah gave him a promise and he says, I will appear to Ahab today. And with that word, Obadiah went off. But here is a super important piece of information and this is going to play not only in this chapter but also in chapter 19 after Elijah's downfall. This is really important that you understand this to get the full impact of what was happening. Here in 1 Kings chapter 18 and in verse 13, Obadiah said, Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by 50 in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Now this is really important because later on, Elijah says that I, even I only remain a prophet to the Lord. He said that in the 18th chapter during this duel with the false prophets. And then he said it twice more. In the 19th chapter, when God appeared to him and said, What are you doing here? And Elijah says, God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one left serving you. And did you know it wasn't true? And Elijah knew that wasn't true. It's important that you recognize this because it says a number of different things. One thing it says is that Elijah was wrong. He had been told right here, there's still a hundred prophets that were hidden in a cave and Obadiah had been feeding. And yet Elijah just ignored that and chose to say that he was the only prophet of God that was left. And you know what? That's wrong. He knew better, and yet God used him. Man, that's a great lesson. I'll be expounding on that a lot more as we go through this. But in 1 Kings chapter 18, and in verse 12, or excuse me, this is verse 17, it says, And it came to pass when Ahab... Saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And Elijah answered and said, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house uh, is that in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and hast followed Balaam. Now, this is really interesting to me, and you know, this is still the same way today, the same thing happens, but you talk to people outside of the church, the Uh, ungodly people, and they'll sit here and they think that, man, um, uh, you know, America, the thing that's bothering America is all of you religious fanatics, and they'll say that we're the ones that are causing all of these problems. But Elijah just refused this and turned it right back around. It's not me that's troubled Israel. It's you and your house that have brought all of this trouble to Israel because you have forsaken the Lord and you've gone and served Baal. And it's the exact same thing today. But I'm telling you, it is not the church that is the problem with America. The only real criticism I have of the church is the fact that they aren't standing up and being the salt and the light that God called them to be. But to the degree that the church is standing and proclaiming the gospel and preaching morality and preaching the truth, that's the thing that is saving this nation and any nation. And look at this in verse 19. Elijah said, Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the groves 400 which eat at Jezebel's table. Now this piece of information right here shows you that Ahab and Jezebel, it had previously been said that they went to kill all of the true prophets of God and and stamp out the worship of, of God, and that had been stated, but now it shows that Jezebel literally fed 850 prophets every single day at her table. In other words, this was a state-sponsored religion, a religion against the true God of Israel, and a religion that fostered and promoted Baal to the point that it killed anybody who disagreed with it. So this is an important piece of information. And I also want to point out that Elijah now is commanding the king, and telling the king what to do. And the amazing thing is that the king obeyed. Look in the next verse, in verse 20. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Now this is amazing. Elijah now was in control. But in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah was a nobody. Elijah didn't have an access to the king. He didn't have an inroad. He wasn't a part of the government. He wasn't the son of a prophet. He was just basically a nobody, but he had a word from God, and he went and spoke that word boldly. And because he was bold enough to pronounce and to say these things in advance, now here he is three and a half years later, and this drought had brought the nation to its knees and because of it, he was the most influential person in the entire nation. And so they gathered all of the people together unto Mount Carmel. And in verse 21, it says, Elijah came unto all of the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. You know, I think this is powerful. In other words, Elijah was basically saying to all the people, look, you need to make a decision. You need to quit riding the fence. If God is God, then follow God. If Baal is God, well then follow Him. You know, this same thing needs to be said today. There's so many people that are entertaining the fact that, yes, there is a God and maybe Jesus is the way to God. And they acknowledge this. They... Uh, they aren't totally opposed to it, but they aren't committed to it. And basically, Elijah is just saying, get off the fence. If God is God, if Jesus truly is the Son of God, if the Word of God is true, if these are the standards, well, then we need to start living by this Word. As Jesus said over in the book of Revelation when he was talking about the church of Laodicea, he says, you're lukewarm. I would you were rather cold or hot. I wish you'd get in or out. But there are so many people today who are riding the fence and they personally, privately might hold on to some of the values that the Word of God teaches, but publicly they won't do it. You need to make a decision and either go serve the devil and forsake God or commit yourself to God and live like a Christian. You need to make a decision to get in or out. And then look what Elijah said in verse 22. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. And then there was another 400 prophets of the groves. All of these were false prophets. And he said in the next verse, "'Let them therefore give us two bullocks, "'and let them choose one bullock for themselves, "'and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, "'and put no fire under. "'And I will dress the other bullock, "'and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. "'And call ye on the name of your gods, "'and I will call on the name of the Lord, "'and the God that answereth by fire, "'let him be the God.'" And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Man, I love this attitude. You know what Elijah is saying? He says, look, we serve a living God. Our God is alive. He can do things. It's not just theory with us. It's not just religion. It's not a belief. We have a living God. And these prophets of Baal, Baal is not a true God. He's not alive. He can't do anything. And he says, let's just have a demonstration. And the God who can manifest himself and do something physical, concrete, let him be the true God. And did you know all of the people answered and said it was a good thing? You know, I think that there are parallels to our day and age. And that is that, you know, the true ministers of God I could spend days on this, but in the New Testament, Jesus said, These signs will follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall uh, speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. That's out of Mark chapter 16. And then down in the 20th verse, it says, So the Lord went with them and worked with them with signs and wonders following Did you know that the true Word of God will be confirmed with miracles? Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 12, He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Did you know that the modern day church has tried to explain that away by saying, Well, the greater works today are us being on television and radio, and we reach masses of people and stuff. I don't believe that that's what he's talking about. But I won't even discuss that. Let's just say, what are you going to do with that portion of the verse that says, the works that I do shall they do also. Jesus went about healing, doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. He saw the dead raised. He saw blind eyes open. And he said that his true ministers would do these things. Did you know if the church was just to stand up and if the true ministers of God said, all right, let's have a... Let's have a contest. You say that you've got the right revelation of God, that you're representing God properly. Show it to me. Demonstrate it. Show me the power of God. Show me somebody who's been raised from the dead. Show me somebody whose blind eyes have been opened. Show me someone who's been come out of a wheelchair and been healed of multiple sclerosis or whatever. I guarantee you if we were to apply this same test that Elijah is doing right here and say just demonstrate if you say that you are a true representative of God, well, then demonstrate the power of God. And if we were to apply this test today, did you know that there are multitudes of quote-unquote preachers that would just have to get out of the ministry? They'd have to bow out because they do not demonstrate it. They're just preaching theory. And yet the Bible makes it clear over in Hebrews, it says that the Lord was with Jesus confirmed His Word and also those who followed Him with all of these signs and wonders. If Jesus, who was the sinless Son of God, and if anybody could ever preach and speak the truth, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus said, don't just believe My words. If I can't demonstrate it, if I'm not doing the works of God, don't believe Me. Even though you don't believe My words, believe these actions. If Jesus had to be confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles, how arrogant is it on any person's part to think that today you can represent God without the supernatural power of God, without healings, without deliverance, without changed lives. I'm telling you, we got a lot of preachers today that do not have the power to back up what they've got to say. And just as Elijah did and says, all right, to you prophets of Baal, Let's demonstrate. You say that you're serving the true God. I say I'm serving the true God. Let's have this demonstration. And the God that can manifest himself and actually do something, let him be the true God. Man, I think that's great. You know, I was in a church over in um, Ireland. And this was a church that Smith Wigglesworth used to minister in back in the, the 1940s and stuff. And I was there and nearly every person in there was old and uh, they were in wheelchairs and it was just a sad, sad situation. There was maybe a hundred people or so in this church and I tried to minister the Word of God and it just wasn't penetrating. And I just stopped in the middle of the whole thing and I said, let's have show and tell. I said, I'm telling you that God is alive. He can do miracles. And I said, we need a demonstration of it. These people needed something. I mean, it was, it was such a dead church that if somebody would have died and you called the emergency crews, they could have taken out half of that congregation before they found the dead person. I mean, these people were sitting there in their wheelchairs. They were falling asleep. It was just bad. So anyway, I got up and I said, let's, let's see the demonstration of God. And I started praying. God gave me a word. I spoke out that somebody had been grieving And uh, then I called out this woman on the front row and I said, God shows me that you've been grieving. You've lost somebody who is close to you who died and you've been blaming God and thinking that it was God that caused this. When I said this, I didn't know any of these things until after, but that was like, I forget the exact details, but it was either the pastor's wife or, or a relative of the pastor or something and they had had a fire, and she lost her husband and all of her children. And she had her grandchildren with her. She was having now to raise five grandchildren because the parents had died, and this had just happened. And there was no way for me to know this. But I started calling this out, and when I said that, man, the people came alive. I had their attention. And I started praying for people, and I saw people come out of wheelchairs. I saw blind eyes open. We saw great miracles happen. And I'm telling you that this is the way that the gospel needs to be preached today with signs and wonders following. We need to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. And sad to say there's just not the boldness on the believer's part that there needs to be. But Elijah was bold and so he called them together and he gave the prophets of Baal every advantage. He says, you pick the bullock. In other words, they had first choice. They got to go first. He gave them every advantage. And so it says here in verse 26 that they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leapt upon the altar which was made. You know what leaping upon the altar was doing? They were, this test was, let's put this sacrifice there and call on your God, Baal, and I'll call on my God, the God of Israel, to answer by fire. And the one who sends fire, in other words, they couldn't put any fire under it, but the one who answered by fire, if fire fell from heaven, then that would be the true God. And so them leaping on the altar, what this was, it was them, in a sense, say, Baal, please send your fire. And they would even leap on the offer and offer themselves as a part of this sacrifice. They were asking fire to fall and they were saying, I'll even give myself as a sacrifice. See, this is the way that false religion always operates. False religion doesn't just approach God based on what Jesus has done and simply appropriate and receive the miracle, but instead they have to offer themselves as a sacrifice. They have to put their own works. God, because I've been fasting, because I've been praying, because I'm holy, would you please move? That's what false religion does. A true minister of God doesn't sit there and offer His holiness and His godliness, and He doesn't have to make His sacrifice. It's not Him that's moving God. He just is the minister of God. He's just a mouthpiece. He's just responding to what God is doing. And so it says in the next verse, verse 27, it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking or he is pursuing or he is in a journey or peradventure, he sleepeth and must be awakened. (laughs) Man, I love this attitude. Elijah mocked them. You know what? This isn't politically correct. Today, even many ministers of God, many of the representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ would never say anything that could ever be taken in a way that is hurtful, harmful, or something like that. You know, I love people. I'm not out to hurt people. And I don't think ministers ought to be mean and vicious But I guarantee you, I am not ashamed of proclaiming that Jesus is the only way. And if that makes somebody say, well, you're saying that my religion is wrong? Yes, that's what I'm saying. It's the truth. And there's ministers that won't say that. You know, I've seen some ministers who I know are born again. I know they love God. I I believe that they are good people. And I mean they have huge influence. And I've seen them interviewed on some of these talk shows, secular talk shows. And one of the things that will often be said is, are you believing that Christianity is the only way to God? Are you saying that people that live in these foreign lands and worship some other way, that they are going to hell? And I have seen ministers, godly, well, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but they're true born-again people, but they, they won't say yes. They won't say yes. There is a hell. Yes, people that don't accept Jesus are going to hell. And they won't say that because it is not politically correct. But I'm telling you, this is the message of the Bible. There's a heaven to be gained and there is a hell to shun and there is only one way to God and that is the Lord Jesus Christ through the atonement that he made. And the people who are worshiping Buddha and Muhammad, they are not the same. There are even some Christian ministers who are saying the God of Islam and the God of Christianity are the same. And that is not true. They are not the same God. They misrepresent God. God is not into jihad. God is not into killing the infidels. This is not the true representation of God. I don't hate anybody. I'm praying for them. I'll reach out to a Muslim, to a Buddhist, to a Hindu, but I'll tell them the truth. And I'm telling you, Elijah here, he mocked them. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you got to yell louder and wake him up. Maybe he's on a journey. You know, and he was mocking them. There's a lot of Christians that wouldn't have this attitude today. And this is recorded in Scripture. This is a godly attitude. God confirmed it by sending forth the fire and causing this miracle to happen. So it says in the next verse, in verse 28, "...and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner." with knives and lances uh, till the blood gushed out upon them. You know what they were doing? Again, it's the same point. They leapt on the altar. They cut themselves. They were offering their own life as a sacrifice. They were trying to get Baal to move by somehow or another, you know, sacrificing themselves, offering all of these religious observances. Sad to say there's a lot of Christians today or people who call themselves Christians that still have this same mentality. They believe that The name of Jesus and faith in the name of Jesus isn't enough. They've got to add their holiness to it and somehow or another they've got to become uh, a sacrifice and do these things to make God to move. There's a lot of people that fasting in prayer. This is the logic behind it. It's the same thing that these prophets of Baal were doing. So it goes on to say in the 29th verse, "...and it came to pass when midday was past that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice." That there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And that is because there is no God except the true God, which Jesus is the son of the true God and the true representative. And every other God is a false God. There is only one way to God the Father. All of these other gods are the invention of men. And he goes on to say in verse 30, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. You know what Elijah was doing? This nation was called the nation of Israel. Israel was the um, name that God changed. Jacob changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And he was the one that started this nation. God used him to start it. And he had 12 sons. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And Elijah went back to the beginning, put 12 stones down. Even though they had rejected that man, he reminded them that God was still the God of Israel. He repaired the altar Did you know that there's lots of people today that would love to see the fire of God come? They would like to see revival. They want to see the outpouring of God's Spirit. But the fire of God doesn't just fall anywhere. There needed to be an altar. There needed to be something that once again went back to the foundation things, the 12 tribes of Israel. He repaired the altar. He prepared a place for the fire of God to fall. You know, if you want to see the fire of God fall in your life, You need to have an altar. I'm not talking about a physical altar here. I'm talking about you need to prepare your heart. You need to make yourself a living sacrifice, as it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And you need to present yourself and say, God, here am I. I'm a living sacrifice. And you you can't put any fire under it. You can't do this yourself. You can't in your own. Make yourself be consumed by God. But you can get up on the altar. It says you have to be a living sacrifice. The problem with a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12 verse 1, is that a living sacrifice keeps crawling off the altar. It's our human tendency to maybe go in spurts and seek God when your back is against the wall when you're in trouble. But we need to be a living sacrifice, a continual sacrifice, constantly, every moment of every day committed to God. And we lay ourselves on the altar, but we've got to have the supernatural fire of God fall. And I'm telling you from experience that you can't just make yourself be consumed with God. You can desire it. You can lay yourself on the altar. You can give God permission. God is a good God. He's a gentleman. He is not going to force himself upon you. If you want to live your own life and be in control of your own life and do your own thing, God won't force you. He will woo you. He'll draw you. He'll send people across your path just like me today saying these things to you that might strike a chord in your heart. And God will draw you unto himself, but he's not going to force you to be committed unto him. You have to begin the process and say, Father, this is what I want. I want you to be absolute Lord over my life. I want you to control me. I want you, your fire to burn on the inside of me. You have to make the choice. And then he's faithful and just to keep that which you commit unto him. But if you don't make the commitment, God won't keep it. God won't consume a sacrifice unless it's on an altar. So in your own life, you need to prepare an altar. You need to make yourself a living sacrifice. And you need to ask for this fire of God to fall. So Elijah repaired the altar. The fire of God wasn't going to fall on something that wasn't sanctified, consecrated, separated unto him. And so he repaired the altar... And then in verse 32, And with the stones he rebuilt the altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench upon the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid it on the wood and, and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about upon the altar. And he filled the trench also with water. You know what Elijah was doing here? He was just making sure that nobody was going to think that this fire fell naturally. You know, it was in a drought. It was hot. Everything was dry. It was scorched. I guess some people could have looked at it and thought, well, it was spontaneous combustion. But he was going to do things in such a way that there could be no excuse. He soaked this sacrifice. He soaked the bullock. He soaked the wood. He, he just soaked it in wood so that nobody would ever misunderstand what happened. And I'm telling you, this is something that we need to do. Is we need, You know, a lot of people are kind of afraid. They don't want to put God in a situation where it may be hard on him as if anything was hard for the Lord. You know, when I minister in front of people, I'll talk about God is going to do miracles. We're going to see blind eyes open, deaf ears open. And when I say that, I can just see that there's some people, oh, don't say that. Don't promise this. What happens if it doesn't come through? And they really think that you can talk too big for God. I'm telling you, God is a big God. God is not in heaven saying, Andrew, don't promise them these things. I might not be able to pull this off. God's never like that. I can't talk too big for God. Now, I I can talk outside of what God wants to do, but I'm saying when I'm telling people that, you know, it says these signs will follow them that believe. They'll lay hands on the sick and they will recover. God gave us a command to go heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. And when I say that this is what we were commanded to do, the same works that Jesus did, we will do also. God isn't in heaven saying, don't promise them this. No, He's he's telling me, go for it. Talk big. I found that the bigger I talk, the more I encourage people to believe big for God, the bigger things we see demonstrated. And yet there's people today that don't have this confidence in the Lord. You know what? God is an awesome God. He is not maxed out by anybody's problem. There are some of you that are dealing with physical things and you're thinking, maybe this is too hard for God. I guarantee you he laughs at all of this stuff. Nothing's too hard for God. There are some of you dealing with financial things and you're thinking maybe this is too big for God. Nothing is too big for God. You can't outdo God. You can't believe bigger than God. Look at Elijah. Elijah just made it hard on God. Soaked everything. How could God possibly consume this sacrifice after he had soaked it with 12 barrels of water? And so anyway, it says here in verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Now this is an important piece of information. Elijah just didn't come up with this on his own. He didn't just come up with this idea and then ask God to do it. See, this is why so many Christians fail is because they, they have their own agenda, their own desires, and they're doing their own thing, and then they try to beg and please God to get, to get God's blessing on something that they've hatched themselves. This would be comparable to Abraham and Sarah. God had promised them a child and since it wasn't coming to pass they thought they had helped God and so he went into his Sarah's handmaid and had an Ishmael which wasn't God's will and they tried to help God out and they did things their own way and you know what? God's blessing wasn't on Ishmael and eventually he had to be cast out and it caused nothing but grief and pain. Ishmael was the father of all of the Arab nations of course uh, Isaac was the father of the Jews and there has been contention and problems in the earth ever since then. This shouldn't have ever happened. You need to make sure that what you're doing is what God wants you to do. You know, in the early days of my walk with the Lord, I used to ask God to bless these things. And I just spent lots of time begging God to bless what I'm doing. Oh God, I want this to be used of you. And then as I've matured, I've just come to a place to where now I only do what God tells me to do. And I don't ever ask God to bless it. You know, when I go minister places, I don't spend time begging God to come and, oh, God, anoint me and, oh, God, flow through me and, oh, God, touch people's lives. I don't ask God to bless me because I'm doing what He told me to do. It would be unjust on God's part to tell me to do something and then ask me to do it in my own strength and power. When God says, come, like Peter, walking on the water, there is enough power and anointing in that one word to overcome all of the forces of nature and walk on top of water. When God tells me to do something, there is an anointing on what I am told to do. God's telling me to build all of these facilities up in Woodland Park, to build a Bible college campus that just the first step, I need $40 million in the next year. I need $180 million over the next five years. And you know what? I don't ever ask God, oh, God, please send this money. God told me to do it. God is going to send the money. I can guarantee you that. Now, there's things I need to do. I need to respond to the Lord, but I don't have to beg and ask for God's blessing because I'm doing this at the word of the Lord. I'm doing what God told me to do, and it will come to pass. And some of you think, well, I don't think it'll ever come to pass. Well, then that's the reason God didn't tell you to do it, it's because you don't have any faith. But I'm telling you, God told me to do it. And you just hide and watch, it will come to pass. Amen. Amen. And so uh, Elijah said, Lord, let it be known that I have done all of these things at thy word. I want to just point this out in contrast the way that the prophets of Baal did things. They, they went for like, I don't know, eight hours. 10 hours or something crying, begging, pleading, cutting themselves, leaping on the altar. Contrast that with Elijah. Elijah just prayed a real simple prayer. Lord, let it be known that you are the only true God. I'm your servant, that I've done these things at thy word. And then in the 37th verse, hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Let me point out another thing right here. Elijah isn't promoting himself. Oh God, do this so that I can be somebody important, so that these people will honor me and respect me, so that I can draw a crowd. His whole thing was God so that they will know that you are the true God. A true minister of God is not going to try and draw people to himself, but they will draw people to God. They will proclaim God's greatness and talk about the greatness of God. Sad to say we've got too many ministers today that are proclaiming their own greatness. And that's the very reason that the fire of God isn't falling on them and their ministry. But after Elijah had done these things, in verse 38, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Man, this was intense. You know, I don't know exactly how this happened. It definitely was the fire of God is what it says, but it could have been something like a lightning bolt that just, I mean, vaporized everything and made a crater. We don't know, but it was dramatic. And you've also got to remember later in this same chapter, Elijah goes up and prays and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. So if it was a lightning bolt or whatever, there was no clouds for it to come from. There was no moisture in the air. This was absolutely supernatural. I mean, it was a powerful demonstration. And would to God that we could see the power of God manifest today. And it will happen today if somebody will stand up and boldly proclaim that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that His Word is true. And if they will stand and proclaim it, And if they will dedicate themselves to be a living sacrifice, the fire of God will fall and we can see these same things happen today. I have not given up on America and these other Western nations. I believe that, man, we could be revived, that God can revive us again. And look what happened... When this fire of God fell and consumed this sacrifice in verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Man, this is awesome. You know what this is? Revival. We've had so much emphasis placed on revival. But they aren't going about it this way. They instead are telling people to go in their prayer closet and pray and they beg God and plead with God to pour out His Spirit. But nobody is standing up. Let me rephrase that. It's not nobody, but there's not enough ministers that are standing up and proclaiming the Word and boldly speaking the Word. God confirms His Word with signs and wonders following what it says in Mark chapter 16 verse 20. He confirms His Word, and we have to stand up and proclaim the Word and proclaim that this is right, this is wrong, this is ungodly, this is godly. We need to stand up and proclaim the Word, and then the fire of God would fall. And if that would happen, we would see revival. But instead, we've got people that are just going into their prayer closets and praying and begging God for revival, but they wouldn't dare speak to their neighbor. They wouldn't dare stand up at work and speak the Word of God. That's not the way it's going to happen. The way that this revival happened, I mean the greatest revival in the Bible up until this point happened through somebody who boldly proclaimed the Word of God, challenged the false prophets to a duel, won the duel, saw a physical manifestation of the power of God, and then the people fell down and said, The Lord, He is the God. Man, if we want this results, we need to do what Elijah did. We need to boldly proclaim. We need to see demonstration of the power of God. Man, that's powerful. And look at this in verse 40. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, and let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slew them there. Now, it says over here in the 19th verse that there were 450 prophets of Baal, but there were also 400 prophets of the grove. All of them were Baal worshipers. And so we don't know if this is only referring to the 450 prophets of Baal or if it included these also 400 prophets of the groves. But anyway, there was a minimum of 450, possibly as many as 850 people that Elijah took down to the brook Kishon that is at the bottom of the uh, Mount Carmel, and he slew him, and he killed them. You know, this is offensive to a lot of people today, but you've got to interpret this and understand in the Old Testament, people could not be born again. And because of that, they could not be delivered of demons. This is the reason that the Lord instructed the Israelites to go in and kill the men, the women, the children, and even the animals. Because these nations in the land of Canaan, they were given over to bestiality. Having sex with animals was a normal, natural thing. They they worshipped demons. They were demon-possessed. There was a tremendous amount of homosexuality, which is a demonic stronghold in people. And in the Old Testament, people could not be delivered of these demons. And so it was similar to when we have a cancer today. They will lump off parts of your body. If you have an infection, they'll cut off your hand, your arm, your leg, trying to save the rest of the body. And before there was a cure for sin that came through the Lord Jesus, bearing our sins, God had to deal with these Old Testament things like this as an infection as a plague that was going to kill the human race if he didn't do it. And, and so he just commanded extinction for all of these things. Today, we don't kill homosexuals. You don't kill people who are rebellious. You don't kill people who are given over to false worship because there's a cure for all of these things. That cure is faith in Jesus. But that doesn't remove the fact that these things were wrong. And so even though we aren't supposed to take anybody who disagrees with us and kill them. See, this is what the Islamic uh, religion teaches is kill all of the infidels and stuff. That is not a godly principle. In the New Covenant, man, we extend mercy. We pray for those who despitefully use us. We reach out in love. We don't hate people. We don't kill people. There is a huge difference between Christianity and Islam today. And so there is a difference, but there still is a principle that even though we don't kill the people like Elijah did right here, we need to have this same attitude that we don't tolerate and put up with the ungodliness and the false representation of God, of other people. We need to stand against it, and we need to not just passively do it. We need to just eradicate it. We need to keep going until we overcome these false representations of God and present God as He truly is. And you know what? I know that this is offensive to a lot of Christians today because Christians today have become so passive that they aren't against anything. But we ought to be against things. You know, David, he slew Goliath. And he didn't just kill him. He stood on top of him, took his own sword, cut his head off, and held his head up. And if you read that over in 1 uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, you will find that the Philistines didn't flee when Goliath first fell down. They were way off, miles away, up on the mountains looking, and it could have been that he stumbled. It could be that he was going to get up again. They didn't flee when he first fell down. But when David stood on top of him, took his own sword, cut his head off, and held his head, head up, Then the Philistines knew that, man, it was over. Their champion was not going to get up, and they fled for their lives. And see, there's a lot of Christians that will fight sickness. They will fight poverty. They'll fight depression. They will fight all kinds of things to the point that it kind of chases the enemy over the hill. They aren't in their immediate danger anymore, but then they give up. They let up. They don't pursue until they've totally destroyed their enemy and they allow that enemy to come back and fight them again. You need to get to where you hate sickness so much that you aren't just going to resist the, you know, like that example I gave, the pain in the neck where this guy only wanted one thing taken away. You need to get the pain in the neck, the spine, the hip, the nerve, the feet, everything. You need to fight sickness until you drive it out of you and it doesn't have any place on the inside of you. But there's a lot of people that will tolerate certain degrees of sickness. that will tolerate certain degrees of poverty. that will tolerate certain degrees of depression and fear and all these kind of things. We need to get to where we just hate the enemy and we destroy it and completely wipe it out. Man, that is a powerful truth right there. We are way, way, way too passive. There are many people that have presented Christianity as a passive religion. Now Jesus did say to turn the other cheek that if you're sued at the law, do this and let them take your coat also. But Jesus, the same one who said that, is the one who made a cat of nine tails and a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple and overturned the tables. I had not got time to put all of this in its proper perspective, but you know, if we are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, you do not defend yourself, you turn the other cheek. But I guarantee you, we need to take an aggressive stand against the lies, the deception that Satan is putting forth in our society today. There's a place for Christians to stand up and be angry and to call uh, sin, sin, and to say that this is wrong. There's a place for us to get angry at sickness and at disease and at poverty. God gave us this capacity for anger. And it wasn't meant to be used against people. It's meant to be used against the devil, against sickness, against poverty, against depression. Every one of you have the capacity to be angry. And the sad fact is we use it against people, but it ought to be against spiritual things. You ought to get a no-tolerance attitude towards sickness and poverty and disease and, and depression and all of these kind of things. We ought to get to where we just do not tolerate these things. Christianity as a whole, this is a generalization, but they have become way too passive. They will not stand up. They do not have a backbone and they somehow or another equate that with ungodliness Jesus was not ungodly when he overturned the tables, drove the money changers out, yelled at him, said, My house shall, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer of all nations, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And Jesus didn't just do that once, he did it twice in his ministry. At the very beginning and at the very end of his ministry, he did it again. And there is a place for us standing up. There is a place. Paul turned around and spoke to Elimaeus the sorcerer and said a mist and a darkness is going to fall upon you and you won't see the sun for a season that's in the new covenant that was the man that wrote half of the new testament got mad and called judgment on a person now he, he wasn't quick to do it he waited for a long time but there is a place for us standing up there is a place for us to take a stand man I tell you these, these things are powerful There are lessons to be learned from Elijah. And sad to say, most people are living a life completely contrary to the examples that are given in the Word of God. And uh, when Elijah called on God, God answered by fire and consumed not only the sacrifice, but the wood, the stones, the dust, everything. It was awesome. And then he killed all of the prophets of Baal and just destroyed them. And the people fell on their face saying, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. This was a tremendous revival. It was awesome. And then it says in verse 41, 1 Kings 18, 41, And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. You know, at this time, as the next verses show us, there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. There wasn't anything. This sound wasn't physical. This sound was in his heart. He knew that rain was coming. And boy, there is a great truth here. And that is that you can see things by the Spirit. You can know things spiritually that you cannot know physically. Boy, that's powerful. I've got a lot of teaching on this. Uh, I often talk about that. I'm not going to go there right now, but this is a powerful truth. Elijah was a man who was walking by faith. He was knowing things through the Spirit and then there was physical manifestation later on. But you receive everything from God first through the Spirit and then it manifests in the physical. People who are praying and asking for some physical manifestation, a healing of your body, finances being provided, whatever it is, you're asking for this physical thing, but you haven't, first of all, seen it on the inside, you aren't going to get it. You have to see it on the inside before you see it on the outside. Well, that's powerful. That is powerful. I could preach on that, but, but I want to go on to some other things here. So he says, I hear this sound of abundance of rain. In verse 42, it says, So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. You know, this is interesting to me because Elijah was basically commanding Ahab what to do. Ahab was the king, and yet Elijah was in control. And when he called this fire down, he, all of the people came over to Elijah's side and they took all of the prophets of Baal and they killed them. The point I'm making is Ahab was really right there with the prophets of Baal and the entire nation, had come over to Elijah's side. You know, it doesn't say this specifically, but it says that the people took the prophets of Baal down there and then Elijah killed them. But he couldn't have done this without the people's help. They basically surrounded the prophets of Baal. They would not let them escape. And Elijah went through and killed them. But Ahab was right in there with them. I wonder if Ahab was actually fearful whether Elijah was going to kill him. Whether he was going to use all of the people coming over to his side to overthrow the government and put the government back to where it was supposed to be. There's no telling exactly how Ahab responded to this and what he felt. And it's just interesting to me that Elijah told him to go to Jezreel because he heard the sound of abundance of rain, and Ahab went up to eat and to drink. This is amazing. He had just seen his Baal worship that he instituted totally defeated, possibly his own life in danger. And Elijah went up, I mean Ahab went up, and he just began to eat and to drink as if nothing had ever happened. This is amazing to me. And so it says, And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, and put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked, and there was nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not." And in verse 45, it says, And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. You know, this is amazing. I went to Israel one time, and I actually... Uh, went up on top of Mount Carmel, and I saw the place where all of this came to pass. And the day that I was there, it just so happened that there was not a cloud in the sky. I mean, it was a perfectly clear day. It was a hot day. And I remember standing up on Mount Carmel after the rest of the group went, and I was kind of there alone, and I looked out over the Mediterranean Sea, and I was just looking and wondering what this must have been like. For Elijah, and then I saw a little tiny cloud. That I mean, it would be a good description to say it was about the size of a man's hand, come up, and I and it was just perfect. It was perfect for me to visualize what it must have been like for Elijah. And look at this passage of scripture over in James, chapter five, and in verse seventeen, it says Elias, or talking about Elijah, was a man's subject to like passions as we are and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of 3 years and 6 months and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit so this is a commentary on these exact passages of scripture that we just read over in 1st kings 18 And notice, it just said that he prayed earnestly. It didn't say he prayed earnestly three times, four times, five, or whatever. It just said he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. It didn't say that he prayed seven times. But in the first king's account, he was praying, and seven times he sent his servant to see if there was any physical indication of what he was praying for that was coming to pass. And here's one of the lessons I learned from Elijah that uh, I apply to my life all of the time. I don't ask God for things over and over and over and over again. If I ask, say for instance, if I ask God to heal me twice, one of those two times, I, I didn't believe that I received when I prayed. Mark chapter 11 verse 24 says, Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall Have them. You have to believe you receive when you pray, and then there shall be a future manifestation. But if you pray, say for instance, for healing, oh God, heal me, and then the next day you get up and say, oh God, heal me, well then you didn't believe that your prayer was answered and you didn't believe you received the first time, or you wouldn't have prayed the second time. But does that mean that you just pray once and then you let it go? No, you can continue to pray until you see a manifestation. But it's just that same prayer. Father, I, I believed yesterday that when I prayed, you healed me, but I still have some pain or I still have a tumor or I still have some effect today. I don't doubt that you've healed me. I've got it, but I am commanding this manifestation to come. I am not quitting until I see the manifestation. You know, I believe that this really is what it's talking about when the scripture says, pray without ceasing. I think that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Pray without ceasing. And the reason it says it, you can't pray while you're asleep. You can't pray when you're doing certain things. I don't think that this means pray 24 hours a day, but what it means is pray and don't quit that prayer until you see the manifestation. It's never God that doesn't answer our prayer. God answers and we receive the moment we pray. But there is a period of time in between when we say amen and there it is. Until we see the manifestation. You know, I've got a teaching on this entitled What to Do When Your Prayers Seem Unanswered. It's based on Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 10. And I'm not going to go through all of that, but there are, God gave the command and it took a period of time from the time that He gave the command until the physical manifestation came. What do you do during that time? Well, you continue to pray, but not in unbelief, saying, Oh God, I asked yesterday and today I've still got the same pain, so therefore you didn't answer my prayer. Now maybe you'll hear this prayer, answer that prayer. No, you've just X'd out your first prayer if that's the way you pray. But here's the way you should pray. You should pray and say, Father, I believe that you granted my answer because of all of the promises. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And all of these things. I believe that I received, but I don't have the physical manifestation. There is some hindrance. And so you turn against the devil. You rebuke the devil. You get a prayer of agreement and get somebody just to agree with the prayer that you've already prayed and that you're still holding on to. You use a prayer of praise, which praise is a weapon against the devil. It will drive demons out. It will release your faith, make it come to full manifestation, Colossians chapter 2 verse 7, and other places. And so you you continue to pray, but not a prayer of unbelief. It looks like to the untrained mind that Elijah prayed seven times about this. Actually, according to uh, James chapter 5, he only prayed once, but he sent his servant seven times. It was just one prayer. As it says over there in the book of James, he prayed earnestly. He didn't pray just a little prayer, Oh God, send rain, and then just wait, and whatever would happen would happen. No, he prayed and he knew that God was flowing through him and he didn't quit his intercession until he saw uh, the beginning of the answer to his prayer. Now, he didn't wait until the clouds were totally dark and it was raining, but the moment he saw that there was a cloud just the size of a man's hand, a little tiny breakthrough, he knew that, man, he had ended the drought and it would be just a short period of time until the rain came. It's like if you can imagine, you know, you're praying and you're asking for something and here's God. He's constantly supplying. God always answers our prayers. God is faithful. But Satan can damn things up. He can resist. And the the things that God is giving, prosperity, healing or whatever, it could be in the pipeline, but it's just clogged up. It's kind of like a dam holding it back. But the moment you see a crack in that dam, the moment you see just a little bit of water spurting through that dam, you know it's just a matter of time now till that whole thing breaks and you, you have your answer. Well, likewise, Elijah, he prayed, and it looked like he was praying seven times, but he actually only prayed once. See, here's a direct lesson to learn from Elijah that we can apply to ourselves. That you just ask God for something one time. Now, this needs a little qualification. You ask... when I'm, I'm talking about when you're praying for yourself. You ask something one time and you believe you receive it. And then you continue to pray, but you are just enforcing the prayer that you've already prayed. You aren't re-praying it. You aren't doubting that you received the first time just because you couldn't see something. See, so you continue to pray. Now, if you're praying for other people, if you're interceding for someone else... You do need to continue and release that intercession and send forth laborers into their harvest and rebuke the God of this world that has blinded their eyes, 2 Corinthians 4. You do need to pray those things over and over because you believe God answered your prayer. God went and spoke to this person, but that person has more authority over their life than you do. And if they reject it and discount the conviction and the witness that God is sending to them, well, then the next day you need to get up and once again release this power to them. Not because you didn't believe God answered your prayer, but because that person voided it. They violated it. They rejected it. So you have to pray prayers of intercession for other people over and over. But when you're praying for yourself, you just believe that you receive But you don't quit praying. You stand on that and you command your body to respond. You command your finances to respond. You rebuke the devil and get him out of the way. It's just one prayer. But you may pray over and over and over a hundred times, but it's just one prayer. You believe you received the very first time you prayed and you're just enforcing it. And so this is what Elijah did. And once he saw this little cloud the size of a man's hand, then he got up and notice here it says that he girded Uh, up his loins. You know, this is talking about they wore robes and it was hard to run when you had a robe on. You could get tangled up in your robe. So what they would do is reach between their legs, grab the back part of the robe, pull it up and tuck it into their belt or their girdle. And what this would do, it would make it like it was shorts or something and a person could run. So he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So you've got to remember that Elijah had told Ahab to get up because he heard a sound of abundance of rain. Ahab had a chariot, and he got in his chariot and headed for Jezreel. So he had a head start, plus he had a chariot, and yet Elijah, he outran Ahab and got to Jezreel before he did. You know, the exact distance, I'm not sure the exact distance, but it was over 20 miles. 20 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel and, and uh, Elijah outran Ahab with a head start in a chariot. He outran him. The only way I can understand this is to say that, man, Elijah was operating on adrenaline. You got to kind of get the setting of this. Elijah had come from nowhere. He had spoken the word of God. And boldly stood in front of a man, the king Ahab, who was killing all of the prophets of the Lord. And yet he said, Thus saith the Lord. He just identified himself with the very God that Ahab was trying to stamp out the worship of that God. He had been bold. And he was protected, and God sent him to the brook Cherith. He had ravens bringing bread and flesh. Then he sent him to Zarephath, and he multiplied the widow's meal there. And for over three years, they had had a supernatural supply of food. The widow's son died, and Elijah raised him from the dead. The first time in the history of Scripture that this is recorded. I guess it's possible it could have happened some other time, but it's not recorded in Scripture. There was no precedent for it. There was no promise for it. So there was no example to follow. Elijah had done things that nobody else had ever done. And then in the 18th chapter right here, he called for an end of the drought. He went up and challenged the prophets of Baal. He overcame them, called fire down out of heaven and destroyed the Baal worship. And the entire nation had turned to God. And then Elijah went up and prayed and the drought ended. He could see the clouds coming. I mean, Elijah had a string of unbroken successes. He had seen things happen that no other living person on this planet had ever seen. That's a big statement because you're talking about Moses, who his face shone. He you know, did all of these mighty things, but Elijah saw things happen that Moses never saw happen. Elijah was flowing in the power of God and he was so pumped, so excited that he outran a chariot for over 20 miles with the chariot having a head start. Man, this speaks volumes. This is amazing. And these are some of the lessons that we learn through Elijah. This man was mightily used of God and the good news is it says that what he had over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says that the things that they had were inferior to the things that we have. The glory that we have under the new covenant is greater than them. Jesus even said this about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. He said, John the Baptist was the greatest of all Old Testament prophets. That included Elijah. John the Baptist was greater than Elijah. And yet Jesus went on to say, Nevertheless, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Did you know if you think that you are the least saint that has ever lived, if you feel like you are one of the sorriest saints, that you don't feel like you have any power, any authority, or anything, if you are born again, you are greater than John the Baptist, therefore greater than Elijah. What we have is greater than what Elijah had. It goes on to say over in 1 Peter, uh, or 2 Peter chapter 1, that The people desired to look into the things that we had. They longed for it. They earnestly prayed and asked God what they were prophesying about. They didn't have the reality of it. Did you know that Elijah and all of these awesome things that he did, Elijah would have given anything to have what you have, what I have. What we have is greater. And I know that there's many people right now saying, oh man, it doesn't look greater to me. That's because we aren't fully taking advantage of what we have. We don't fully realize what we have. Elijah was operating in the full measure of what he had, but it was inferior to what you and I have. We have power and authority that Elijah never even thought of. You and I have no excuse. There are reasons why we aren't seeing the power of God manifest, but there's not an excuse. God has equipped us. He's given us everything that we need, not only for our own personal lives, but so that we could affect our nation, so that we could affect things. God has equipped us. The problem is we just don't know what we have and we aren't fully utilizing it. It says over in Philemon chapter 1, verse 6, Paul was praying for Philemon and he says, I pray that the communication of thy faith would become effectual, how? By the acknowledging of every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. If we just knew what we really have, who we truly are, if we fully understood what happened at salvation and in our spirit that we are identical to Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, As Jesus is, so are we in this world. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. If we fully understood that, and if we understood that this doesn't fluctuate, that our spirit has been sealed by the Holy Spirit, when we sin, sin enters into our physical body and into our mental, emotional part, but it does not penetrate the seal of the Holy Spirit around our spirit. Our spirit retains its righteousness, its holiness, its power, its authority. If we understood these things to the max, and if we were living in it, and like Elijah, bold, to speak these things. There are so many Christians who know more than what they're speaking. But if we would boldly stand up and speak the word and not be afraid of men and what they might do to us, I guarantee you we would see the miraculous power of God manifest through our lives the same as Elijah did through his and even greater.